Welcome to Chase the Vase podcast, where we share stories about those who have fought to overcome addiction. Join us every Tuesday and Thursday for the latest stories, tools, and tricks to sobriety. Now, here's your host, Brock Bevel. Welcome to another episode of uh, Chase the Vase podcast. I'm talking to a man who oversees in Australia. Man, this has been kind of a cool year. Most of my guests have been outside the U.S. I don't know why, but I'm jacked up about it. I'm loving to learn more about what's going on outside the U.S. as well as inside the U.S. So I have my next guest is Gary Fye. He is a mind strength coach. This dude is a highly sought after speaker and best-selling author who embodies the mantra. Check this out, guys. Lived it, learned it, and earned it. That's dope. I really like that, Gary. I might have to steal that once or twice. I, I won't take it as my mantra. My mantra is it will be done and I will do it. So I love yours, man. Uh, your unique, brutal honesty. And I, I'm hoping to hear that brand was forged through 18 years with the Australian Federal Police. Thank you, brother. Number one, I always thank the first responders before we begin just for, for doing it for us, man, for being sheepdogs, for protecting us. We thank you. I'm also a retired police officer, so we'll talk about that. You worked with the Australian Federal Police where you led Australian Prime Minister's personal protection team. That's cool. We got to talk a little bit about that, what that looks like. And managed the office of the commissioner, a deep, dark, and destructive battle with mental health. Combination of formal and informal education, coaching, mentoring to develop your own practical system and structures for success. That was a mouthful, man. So basically, you are a cool dude who has struggled with mental illness, with with just the battle with mental health. I like to call it mental wellness because I think we're all going through it. A police officer, covert operative. First of all, dude, talk to me about, like, we don't have prime ministers in the U.S. What is that equivalent to? Yeah, cheers, Brock. I appreciate you having me on, mate. And it's, um, you know, it is fantastic to be able to connect with people from all over the world. And there's a lot of downside to some of the COVID experience that people are having. But there's always some silver lining to the cloud. And this is one of them. We get to share experiences now because of how much we use, you know, Zoom and other, other technologies we can actually start to connect more people across the world, you know. So thank you very much for having me on and also for the, for the conversation. But in very simple terms, our Prime Minister is your president. He's the figurehead or she is the figurehead that runs the country. That is the, we have a slightly different system um, of politics in Australia, still democratically elected um, system. Um, but primarily the Prime Minister is the head of our uh, elected government. So it basically runs the country. So talk to me, man. What is your personal protection team? What, what did it look like? Was it a covert team? Was it, how did you guys function? What was your role? My job for most of my time with the prime minister was uh, as the team leader of that, that team. We had three teams. So I, I ran one of those teams. And uh, knowing a little bit and having worked with your guys from the Secret Service, I can say that we do it, let's just say, a little bit different to you guys. Our close personal protection team is a lot smaller. We try to work from what I call an intelligence-based, not intelligent, but intelligence-based profile. We don't have the numbers. We don't have the, the dollars to just surround our prime minister with 
you know, brute force and sheer numbers. Uh, so we tend to be a little bit more like the British system where we um, uh, like to be swift and agile, be able to move quickly. We have a close personal protection team, but that's supported as well by, you know, state, territory, police forces. It's supported by intelligence networks, intelligence agencies, the defence force at times. It's a pretty dynamic uh, role, probably a little more dynamic than, than look after the President of the United States. You know, I'm aware certainly from their visits down under how pre-planned and how to the, you know, to the letter they tend to be planned six months, 12 months out in advance. And again, you've got a big moving beast. You've got to, you know, you've got to do that. We're a little more agile in that sense, but yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. I need some deep, dark secrets, man. What did you think? Do you respect? I mean, maybe that's a bad word. You know how inter-agencies, we always look, you know, I, I worked on our SCAT team, so we looked at the un- undercover units and stuff for like kind of with their nose down a little bit. What was your respect like for our Secret Service? Look, 100% respect. And I think as you mature through your career, you start to develop more respect for, for other agencies, for other departments. You know, perhaps when you're coming through, you know, I'm, I'm now five years removed. So it's, it's 23, 24 years since, since I joined the, the police. There was still what we used to call dinosaurs that, you know, were probably a little more uh, militant about we're the best, the other teams are not that good, we do it better than, you know. But as you mature through, you really get to respect the skills and the craft of other agencies. You know, I don't look at many other police forces around the world or even in this country, even intelligence agencies, and say we're better. We're just different. We do things differently. You know, the Secret Service, I've had great relationships with guys in the Secret Service. We brought our Prime Minister to the US, the Secret Service looked after our prime minister when we're in your country. You know, we've had the president down here, or not this president, but other presidents down here in my time. And we work closely with the Secret Service there. We do international visits where, you know, like a a G20 or something like that, where we work together with a whole range of people. Everyone does it different for for good reason as well. You know, you guys do it differently. You've lost a couple of presidents in in the history of the US. We fortunately haven't, uh, not uh, not to anything like you guys. And so we get, we've had a different experience, so we do it differently, not better or worse. And thankfully, most of us are able to work well together. Isn't that crazy how experiences change everything about the way we protect? Had you guys lost a president or a, a prime minister, it would be a little bit different in, in your response. So that's cool, man. So I want to get into what you're doing today. I mean, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for your service. But I, I want to talk about this battle that you had, how you overcame it and what you're doing today, because I think you have some valuable, and you are a valuable resource to us. So I know that you struggled with this mental, this battle with mental health. Talk to us, when did it start? How, how did you recognize it? You know, to probably, to put that in, into perspective, I didn't recognize it for a long time. Uh, you know, I was a, oh, I am an alpha male. I was in an alpha dominated environment. You know, I played sports. I was a problem solver. Uh, you know, I was at the top of my game. Certainly, I couldn't have had a problem if I was everybody's problem solver. So, you know, for a long time, I masked this problem from myself. And the, and the problem mostly for me was a, a major depressive disorder. Um, I had some anxiety in there. It manifested itself in what became a very bad gambling addiction. So my escape became gambling. Uh, when I talked to people about having had an addiction problem, uh, to be fair, most people's first thought is drugs, then alcohol, and then when I tell them it's gambling, they're a, a little bit surprised. But 
you know, to me, it's just an escape. The addiction I had was to escape and to escape from my vulnerability, to escape from my ego. I was trying to protect myself. And the only place that the noise would turn off in my head was gambling. It would work sometimes for training. If I was training, it would work sometimes listening to music. But 100% of the time, if the noise was going on in my head, if it was too loud, gambling would work for me 100% of the time. And that was because I didn't do the work in recognizing that I had a vulnerability. And nothing wrong with having a vulnerability, but because I didn't recognize it, it, came, it got worse and worse and deeper. And then I had to mask it even further. And so because I didn't go through that process, ultimately I ended up losing close to $2 million through my gambling addiction. I lost my career. I lost my reputation. I made some very bad choices with my work credit card that uh, cost me my career, my reputation. And, you know, I was very close. I started really considering the value of my own life. And, um, you know, I got very close to that point that, that we don't come back from. And it was tough, you know, 18 years in the, in the federal police. I'd like to think that all bar the, the one issue at the end, it was uh, 18 years of integrity and, and commitment. And it was all washed away. Ten years, I silently battled that depression and gambling addiction while I was at the top of my game. It was a, you know, it was an interesting, in hindsight, an interesting study to watch that I could still be at the top of my game and struggling so poorly until the wheels fell off, you know, and, and they fell off in a in a really big way. So, Gary, during the process, man, did you at any time realize? I love what you said. I can't be the problem if I'm everybody else's problem solver. I think a lot of men feel that way. We're responsible to go to work and protect our families and feed our families and have nice things and keep up with our neighbors. I, I get all that. You lost two, almost $2 million, man. So at what point in time did you realize, hey, I might have a problem? I think there's a, it's certainly not directly linked, but there's a quote in, in the, the Horse Whisperer that Robert Redford says about um, breaking up from marriage. He says, I think the, the lady says to him, how do you know when it's over? And he says, knowing is the easy part. It's the saying it out loud that's the hard bit. If you really judge your behavior, if you're prepared to be brutally honest enough with yourself, I would have known probably at least a year into my major depression. I mean, I first went to get help with gambling in 2007. And I didn't have my major breakdown with it till 2016. So there was an L, I knew, uh, you know, and, and I think this is one of the, the problems that a lot of men, but a lot of people in particular face. You know what you're not doing. You know what you're doing wrong. Whether or not you're prepared to actually be honest about it is the problem. And that was my problem. You know, I, I knew I was struggling. I didn't know what uh, with what, and I didn't know what to do about it. But the first thing I needed to do was be honest about it. And that was what I couldn't do. So it just kept getting worse and worse and deeper and deeper until, you know, it was going to end one of two ways. I was, you know, I was either going to end it or I was going to get in so much trouble that I couldn't, you know, I could no longer continue down that path. And look, i got to say, thankfully, it was the second that happened. I got in so much trouble that, that I couldn't continue down that path because the alternative wasn't a, you know, we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. Let's get to the second part in a second, but I really want to know about this, the suicidal thoughts. I think all of us, when we're in, I mean, active addiction, when we're going through it, I, I believe every one of us have had those thoughts. It doesn't mean we go through with it. It doesn't mean we, we're weak or stronger. It just means it's where our mind allows it to take us. And so how deep did those thoughts get? I think it's an interesting, uh, sorry, an important place to talk about too because you know i think suicide and suicidal thoughts are on a spectrum there is a difference between 
not wanting to or not being happy to not wake up tomorrow morning and actively considering taking your own life. You know, there's probably plenty of people out there that have gone to bed one night and just gone, you know what, I actually don't care if I wake up tomorrow. That's a different level of spectrum to planning and taking it out. Man, I'm going to interrupt you on this. I mean, just so I can kind of solidify what you're saying, because this is epic. This is really important. I hope my listeners are like, man, they're tuned in because that's important because you said a valuable, there, there is a difference. I mean, some of us feel like, hey, I'm tired, man. I mean, things are going wrong. I got some debt, difficult life, man. It does, nobody cares if I wake up. Not an hour before you called me, I have a lady that absolutely adore struggled with alcohol for the longest time and has now shifted her addiction into fentanyl. And she just called me. She was about to make a really bad decision. She knew she was driving to go pick up more fentanyl. She's got three days clean. And she's calling me with these thoughts. And and she told me that. She goes, I think I'm continuing to use fentanyl, hoping that it may kill me. Because I feel like my family, my husband, my kids would be better off if I wasn't here. And, and so that's really where our minds take us because the addiction doesn't matter if it's sex, drugs, alcohol. I mean, it's that chemical hook that's in your brain that's kind of forward pushing that. You know, it becomes a bit of a slope too where, you know, something that I learned uh, through my discussions with psychologists and psychiatrists about um, about suicide, it can become a slippery slope from that thought of not wanting to wake up or I don't care if, if I don't wake up tomorrow down to planning and actively taking out that process. But one thing that was very important for me to learn was that a suicidal thought is actually your brain doing what your brain was designed to do. I want to make sure I explain that properly because, you know, our brains have been developed to keep us alive. So instinctively, it doesn't seem to make sense that your answer is to commit suicide. But the brain's understanding of of being alive is avoiding pain. It doesn't understand necessarily life and death. It understands pain and it avoids pain, you know, more than it is prepared to chase uh, pleasure. If I'm in a deep, dark pain, and my pain was, you know, almost similar to that story, I'd tried a number of times to give up gambling. And I'd been successful three or four times for like six months. And, and I'd always gone back. And even after falling as far as I did for work, I went back to gambling again. And I was in this br- mindset that I just can't beat this. I just cannot beat this. I was in that much pain that I truly thought the only way that this is going to end. Now, the thing to realize is that is actually a logical thought process for the brain. If the brain wanted the pain to end, you know, speaking candidly, if you commit suicide, that pain does end, right? So I started congratulating my brain on doing what it was developed to do, but then I had a conversation with it and I said, and it sounds a bit odd, but this is what worked for me. Okay, brain. Thanks for doing your job. I appreciate you've come up with that option. Not a very good one. Let's go for another option. Unfortunately, what people do is when they start to consider suicide, they just keep trying to convince themselves not to think about suicide. They never explore other options or they're not prepared to go through other options. And so the only option that seems available to them is the suicide. 
you know, again, it's a logical process for the brain to go through. Just like any other problem solving, you don't get one option and take it. You thank the person for providing the option. It's not a good one. Let's explore what other options we have. And, and that to me was life-saving. To, to know that I wasn't crazy for thinking about it, to know that it was actually what my brain was designed to do, to put it into context as well. Again, you know, it's not to say it's an option. The brain did what it's doing, therefore I should go through with it. It's to understand that the brain's trying to avoid pain. My greatest pain at that time was the inability to quit gambling. And my brain wanted to solve that problem. It came up with an option. I didn't like that option. So we went and explored other, other ways to do it. So Gary, tell me what you tried. You said, hey man, I tried and tried to stop. And I even stopped for six months. That is exactly the same thing us addicts of pornography, of opioids, alcohol. Like I can stop for a time, but it restarts. So tell me, tell me what tools that you were trying to do just to get it to subside. Yeah, I think I, I did a, a speech on this um, last year at a, uh, an addiction conference down here. I label it, because I also work in health and fitness, I, I label it as trying to solve the problem you see in the mirror. So in health and fitness, the problem you see in the mirror is generally your weight or size. And people try and solve that problem. For me, gambling was the problem I saw in the mirror. So I tried to beat gambling and I was successful until something came up in my life and I went back to it. I needed to escape again. What I wasn't doing was exploring the reasons behind why I was gambling and then the reasons behind those reasons. And so over time, I learned that gambling was my addiction. It was a problem, but it wasn't my problem. It wasn't my problem. It was my escape. Beneath that was my excuse. I had an excuse to go gambling and that was my depression and anxiety. But beneath that was my ego. I was trying to protect my ego. I was, I was unable to be brutally honest with myself about the struggles that I was feeling, the fact that I didn't feel like I was fulfilled. You know, I had all this success that everybody was, was pointing at me saying, this guy must be the happiest guy in the world. And I didn't feel that. I felt ashamed of the success that I was having. I felt like, how can I not, how can I not be enjoying this? I was trying to protect the problem solver ego. Once I started to work on that problem, the gambling went away. It literally went away overnight. When I, when I decided to focus on my future and decided to focus on the underlying elements that led me to depression and anxiety, therefore gambling, that's when it went away. When I just tried to fix the gambling, I did that with brute force, right? It's like every day you wake up like, don't gamble, don't gamble, don't gamble, don't gamble, right? You can't win that battle every day for the rest of your life. You have to find a different system. For me, it's focusing forward. I can't tell you the last day. I, I can tell you the last day, uh, maybe the last day I gambled. I don't know the days. I don't count the days. It's irrelevant to me. I used to believe in Santa Claus. I no longer believe in Santa Claus, so I don't go around telling people that I'm someone who believes in Santa Claus. I used to gamble. I don't go around telling people that I'm a gambling addict still because I am not. I used to be, but now I've got a different future. I don't tell people I'm still a police officer. I'm not. I used to be, but I'm not anymore. So today, man, I love that. What, what, a, what a cool take on that. So you had a really bad incident at work. I mean, we don't have to dive into it, but it sounds like there was some money you got fired for it. Is that what I'm hearing? I'm happy to talk about it. I mean, I, I'm not happy it happened, but, you know, basically when I was running the commissioner's office, I was responsible for a lot of our, uh, when we travel, I'd, I'd do a lot of our payments. And sometimes I'd pay that out of my own money and get reimbursed. Sometimes I'd use the work credit card. 
Sometimes, you know, I take money out on the work credit card to pay for things and that sort of stuff. And look, ultimately, over a 15-month period, I began, I was gambling worse and worse and worse. And, you know, I kept creating justifications in my mind that, you know, I'm spending my money so the police can give me some money back. And then if I give me too much this time, I'll spend more of mine next time and it'll come back around and then I'll pay it back. And then if we don't go on that trip, I'll be able to do, you know, I'll have to give this money back. It was just bullshit to cover or to justify my own head to keep going with my my addiction. And I certainly didn't use all of the money for uh, for gambling. I used, you know, there was a, some money and a lot of money I used for the actual purpose it was supposed to be used for. But at the end of the day, I couldn't justify the way that I was using uh, the work credit card and you get found out. And, you know, again, you know you're not doing the right thing. I, I knew. I didn't want to tell myself that. I, I justified it with other reasons. But you, you know what you're doing, you know. So then I had to, um, you know, I lost my, my job over it, you know, and, and I went through a criminal procedure uh, proceeded because of it. You know, thankfully, I, I managed to get my life back on track and, you know, I'm now able to use, you know, as I said, I've, I've lived it. I learned my lessons. I've also learned lessons of, of how to get through that stuff and and I've earned my place in, in what I do now. You know, it's not, I haven't read it in a book. I've, I've earned the journey to get here. Dude, I love that. You know what's interesting? So I had a 10-year addiction, police officer, retired, all the whole the whole thing with you. But what's funny is people always ask me, would you, if you had an opportunity to go back and change the course of that in your life, would you do it? I wouldn't. And they're like, you would go through that pain and that addiction and the loss and all that? Absolutely. Because today, I'm a different person because of that. And if I didn't have that experience, I wouldn't be able to sit here with you and and help other people through the process. And I think that's right, Brock. You know, look, I say to people, I'm very careful about the way I say this, but, you know, I lost $2 million. I lost my career and my reputation. I've seriously considered taking my own life, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, I'm not flipping about it. I wish I didn't have to go through that to arrive where I am right now. But if I didn't go through that, I wouldn't have arrived where I am now. I might not even be here for a start. But secondly, I wouldn't be able to, like I'm happier now with less than what I was when I was at the top of my game. I am so much more fulfilled in life now because I'm able to be honest with myself. I'm far more self-aware. I live my life on my terms. There is no external factor that influences my joy, my happiness, my fulfillment. This is a place that I wish I could have gone to without the pain, but I went through the pain and I'm glad I'm here. So today you're coaching men. You're an author, man. Tell me about this book. Tell me what's up. I love the title. I would love to hear more about it. Look, I started writing almost the day I got in trouble at work, the day I got called into deputy commissioner's office to start explaining what was going on. I started writing and I'll be honest, I probably started writing because I was looking for someone else to blame. I started writing down all these things that were tough in my life, that I was working 60 and 70 hours, that I was always on call, I was going through this divorce, I was, you know, I had a new family that I was trying to, you know, be with, I was travelling all the time. I started writing all these thoughts down and, you know, I'm very grateful that I didn't go through with that process. I mean, I, you know, everybody does go through a victim stage, I suppose. It's somebody else's fault, somebody else's problem. But I started writing it from that point of view. And over the course of about four years, I started to get a bit more refined in what I was thinking. I started to do my own work. I started to appreciate my role and my responsibility and where I ended up. 
which to be honest was total. It's all my, you know, I got here because of the actions and the, and the decisions that I made uh, throughout my entire life. And the book basically is broken down into two parts. And I hope language is okay for your, um, for your listeners. But uh, the first part is how did I get here? And the second part is how do I get out? And at the start, it reminded me of my journey back to the office to explain what I'd been doing my credit card in the most literal of sense. How do I get out of this? Not how do I get out of this in my life and my addiction and my depression and all of those things. How do I get out of trouble? What could I come up with? What story could I come up with to justify this and get out? I was just thinking, how do I save my ass, basically? But again, as I started to develop a more mature thinking about it, it actually became more of my whole story. How does a successful guy, a man of integrity, a highly educated guy at the top of his game end up as broken as I was? And then the next part of it is, how on earth do I get out of that? How did I get out of that? Fortunately, when I finished the book, I was writing from hindsight. I already knew the path that I'd taken and certainly the path that I'd researched and learned from experts around the world. I've worked with a lot of people and I now coach that in others as well. So yeah, the book is basically, you know, how does anybody arrive at their struggle? And probably more importantly, how on earth do you get out of it? What is your theme when coaching men? Because I know you're, you're coaching successful guys who are afraid to raise their hand, you know? So talk to me a little bit about that. Cause I know there's men who are listening to this podcast that say, Hey man, I kind of like Gary's approach. I'm going to reach out to him. My approach is a bit in your face. You know, there's a hole, I think, and, and there certainly was more so when I was going through what I, you know, my struggles. I, I say to people, I try to be the coach that I needed 10 years ago. The voices weren't available 10 years ago. I didn't know this existed 10 years ago. I didn't want to go to somebody wearing linen pants and sandals to tell me to go and sing Kumbaya. That's not the guy I was, right? It, it it works for a lot of people and it's very much needed. But I'm a in-your-face kind of guy. I'm an alpha male. I don't want this kumbaya shit. I want you to tell me how do we work through it together. I'm an action-orientated guy. That's the type of client that I work best with. We find out pretty quickly whether or not we're a good match because the minute that you turn up and we have that brutally honest conversation, if you run from that, you're probably not suited to uh, to working with me. But if, if you're ready to do the work, you know, this isn't just people that are at rock bottom. I work with people that are on the edge of greatness and they're just not sure how to get to that next step. But I do definitely work with those successful people that are, you know, look, 30, 35, 40, 50 uh, years of age that are going through that crisis of I need to get a better car, I've got to get more money, I need a better job. I'm starting to look elsewhere around my partner. I'm starting to think about cheating on my partner. Or I already have. I'm starting to make risky investments. These are all signs that your success is very externally driven and you're, you're not happy and you're trying to find more external validation. If those are the things that you're starting to, to do, start to talk to someone. The great thing about talking to me is it's safe. You don't have to be vulnerable in front of your workplace. You don't have to be vulnerable to your wife. You don't have to be vulnerable to your mates. This is a place you can come and, you come and say it. We hash it out. You get over what your, your drama is and we move forward. So, Gary, how do we get a hold of you? How, how do people reach out? Facebook, Instagram, what's the best way? Uh, the best place or the easiest place is uh, GaryFay.com. It's 
Gary, G-A-R-Y, and Faye is F-A-H-E-Y. Uh, there's links on there. There's a, a few things. There's a few tools on there as well that, um, you know, I've got a routine building program that anyone can have 28 days to build a good routine for themselves. Or Instagram is probably the next one. It's, but my Instagram is my business page, which is strong.mend. It's M-E-N-D as in fix. Strong.mend. Let me spell that so everybody over on this side of the, of the uh, universe understands. It's Gary, G-A-R-Y. Last name is F A H E Y. When you said when you said it, I was looking at him like that didn't sound like that. So I just want to make sure that we can have you. But hey, I've been blessed, dude. Seriously, thank you for your time. Your I appreciate your your resolve coming out of it, explaining uh, real basic about addiction, how to recover from it, some ideas. So thank you for your time in, in law enforcement and for what you're doing. I do appreciate it. Thanks, Brock. I appreciate you too, mate. I've, I've uh, followed you for a little while. I, I think we have a mutual friend that uh, mentioned you a little while back. And, you know, I appreciate the stuff that you're doing, not only doing now, but certainly your service and uh, and the service that you're providing to people now. I mean, this is these topics are real topics. You know, we know that addiction is rising, especially through this COVID period. And, and again, we probably tend to resonate with a similar type of audience. There are people out there that need to resonate with a in-your-face voice that this isn't going away. You know, people that are alpha, people that are successful have issues as well. And and I appreciate uh, you being vulnerable with your story and and the people that you have on. I appreciate that. I would love to have you back on. I I would really. So let's stay in contact. I'm going to order your book. I do tell this a lot. I I really only order books if I can get uh, the author's signature. I probably have... 70 people have been on the podcast. I've gotten their books. I bought them. I, I work with them. I, I just love reading people's ideas and your story. So let me know. Is it is it on Amazon best way? Yeah, it's on Amazon. It's, it's the best way. There is a link on my website as well, but the best way to get it's on Amazon, amazon.com if you're in the US, .com.au if you're in Australia or .uk in England. But you send me your address, I'll sign one and send it up to you, mate. Thank you, brother. When you send it, I always send a a little present from the U.S. So thank you, sir. Enjoy. Appreciate your time, brother. Cheers, Brock. Thanks, Mike. You've been listening to Chase the Vase Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or Apple Podcast to get new, fresh weekly episodes. For more information, please follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, or visit our website, chasethevase.com. Until next time, keep chasing the vase.